The low AMH typically goes along with a low antral follicle count and is an indicator of diminished ovarian reserve. None of these indicators mean that you have severe or intractable infertility. We use these methods because we need something to help guide our treatment. Mainly, we have to know whether you are going to need high or low doses of medication because we should be personalizing our treatment to each patient. So we have to know that going into it. And also we need to manage expectations. Been There Injected That is a TMI podcast about going through infertility and all the hormone injections, awkward moments, and nervous breakdowns along the way. I'm Elise Ash. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Been There, Injected That. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Ellen Goldstein, who is a reproductive endocrinologist. And we are going to be talking today about diminished ovarian reserve. And I am so excited to have Dr. Goldstein here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Elise. I'm really honored to be included on your podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit about your background, how you help your patients, and then also a little bit more about this diagnosis that I hear so many women um, trying to come to terms with this diagnosis and really understand what it means for them. So excited for you to help maybe clarify some stuff and get people on the right track. Definitely. So Dr. Goldstein, could you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about where you live, where you practice, and what kind of medicine you, you study and work on. So I am a reproductive endocrinologist, which is a subspecialty of OBGYN. So we do not come at this from an internal medicine standpoint. We come at this from a women's health and OBGYN background. So I'm a board certified OBGYN. I have delivered many babies in my life and then pivoted from that into subspecialty training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So we have extra training on top of our general training. And most of us practice only infertility at this point and not general OBGYN, but we are your go-to experts for everything related to fertility, but also other women's endocrine disorders, um, including very common things like polycystic ovary syndrome, disorders of menopause and premature menopause, disorders of puberty, and also um, disorders of like sexual development and sexual differentiation. So I practice in Los Angeles in a small boutique practice. It's just me and my boss. And I really have a really lucky, wonderful balance at my practice where it is small enough that I can really give my patients very personalized attention, boutique attention. I do everything myself for my patients and don't rely on ultrasound technicians or nurse practitioners or PAs or anything. It's everything is me. And that really gives me a lot of satisfaction in knowing that nothing is missed and everything is done exactly the way that I would want it to happen. When you say a boutique agency and you say LA, I immediately go to like Bravo TV, like People <laughs> Magazine. I'm like, oh my gosh, are you all like with celebrity? Like, and I'll get to that. But I'm like, oh my gosh, what if you were in the waiting room with like, yeah. I don't know, Kim Kardashian? <laughs> I'm like, that's amazing. I do have some celebrity patients. It's hard because, you know, in our field, there are, it's still kind of run by like the old men that started this field. So you'll find a lot of practitioners are men in their 60s and 70s at this point. They kind of have a lock on the field. It's hard for someone like me to break into it. And I think one thing that we can talk about even as we go on is that 
part of the silence around infertility care is that women don't share their experiences with their friends and colleagues. They don't even share their good and bad experiences with their doc with about uh, regarding their doctors with their friends. And so I have these wonderful patients who kind of get to me through serendipity, but they don't even necessarily tell people about me. And so the friends still wind up going to the big names. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand what you're talking about. And there is still so much shame and stigma around this diagnosis. And for some people, I mean, I read a statistic that said 60 something percent of women don't even tell anyone that they're struggling to get pregnant. I'm like, that is such a lonely experience for something that millions of people go through. Exactly. And it's just really important. I think we're really in a golden age of conversation of kind of shattering the the stigma because we really are. There are a lot of us starting to really people like you and sort of covering different aspects of the patient experience and people like me who are interested in bringing medical information, more correct medical information to more people that we're really trying to break through that. So Dr. Goldstein, stepping back for a second, I'm curious, why did you decide to go into medicine? Was that something you always wanted to do as a kid? How did you find this path? It's definitely an evolution, as is everyone's career. I always loved science, but in college kind of thought I could do basic research or genetic counseling. And there was some project I did in college that involved having to stay up all night counting dead fruit flies that definitely led me towards the personal touch of clinical medicine. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Counting dead fruit flies definitely sounds like a career path killer from a project perspective in college. Not for me. (laughs) So was there a moment when you decided that you wanted to specialize in reproductive endocrinology or was that also an evolution? Definitely an evolution. Um, When you're in medical school, you get to try out different fields. And I just really found that I had found my people. The different specialties in medicine are kind of like different herds of animals. I kind of think about herds of animals kind of like on the Delta in Africa and everybody's kind of like, you know, looking at each other, but they're all very different. And so like in that scene in Mean Girls. Is it it is like in Mean Girls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. You know, when I was in internal medicine, I just didn't fit in. Like I couldn't stand the people. I mean, like neurology the most. I couldn't stand neurology. But like in OBGYN, it's like I just loved every minute. I was jumping out of bed at four o'clock in the morning to get to work. I really found my calling when the doctors that I was working with would sort of say something flippant to a patient and then turn around and the patient would like start crying. And I, as like a medical student would sit down and actually explain what was going on. That happened so many times, even just as a student. And it really set the tone for how the rest of my career was going to go. Well, and that's such an important part of practicing medicine. I mean, that we talk about it like bedside manner, but it's really about connecting with patients, which when they trust you, they tell you more. Like it it actually probably, I would think would make your job easier to understand a little bit more context, which would help you better recommend a pathway or treatment that this patient would connect with. Exactly. So kind of now talking a little bit more about diminished ovarian reserve. Can you define what that means and explain this diagnosis? Right. So I think it's really important to differentiate diminished ovarian reserve from infertility. They are two completely separate diagnoses. So before we talk about DOR, which is what I'll call it for short, let's just talk about infertility really quickly. Infertility is a diagnosis just like anything else. You meet the criteria for infertility if you have 
been trying to get pregnant for a year without success, or you're 35 and over, and you've been trying for six months without success, without any kind of workup or diagnosis, you can be diagnosed with infertility with one of those two things. And then the workup of infertility goes down a path of trying to figure out what is the diagnosis for your infertility. So you can be diagnosed with infertility due to not ovulating or infertility due to low sperm count or infertility due to tubal blockage. Um, and those are all subcategories of infertility. The way I talk about diminished ovarian reserve is that when I diagnosis, I can say so-and-so Jane Doe has primary infertility, comma, tubal factor complicated by diminished ovarian reserve. And that's how I would describe somebody's diagnosis, meaning primary, like she's never gotten pregnant, tubal factor, meaning her tubes are blocked, and it's complicated by diminished ovarian reserve, which means low egg quantity, not quality, but quantity. And what happens is when we go to try to treat infertility, we treatments all rely on exploiting the natural egg numbers that we all have in our ovaries to try to improve efficiency of treatment. And so the more eggs you have, the more efficient your treatment is going to go. But it's really sort of a man-made construct that never really came into play before we had fertility treatments. My other question is, how does somebody get diagnosed with DOR? So what is the process like through that workup? What tests do you run? How can you actually kind of know that's what's going on? We all have many thousands of eggs in our ovaries. And every month, a small group of eggs wakes up from sleeping. And this little group of eggs is kind of like simmering. So think about your thousands of eggs as kind of a deeply hibernating pool of eggs. And then you've got your group that wakes up every month through natural, very complicated mechanisms within the ovary. This small group of eggs wakes up and they kind of simmer there. And they're kind of like, they're kind of going, pick me, pick me, pick me. And then there's these very complicated communication pathways between the brain and the ovary such that one egg grows and ovulates. So every month your one egg grows and ovulates and the rest of this group dies. So every month there's a constant growing and dying of a pool of eggs and that is the ovarian reserve. Are those follicles rather than egg? Like, is that the difference between an egg and a follicle? A follicle is simply what we see on ultrasound. So a follicle is the fluid around an egg. So an egg is microscopic and you can't see it on ultrasound. A follicle is fluid around one egg that you can then see and count on ultrasound. Okay. So that's why if you're going through IVF, you could have 20 follicles, but when you do your egg retrieval, you actually have 17 eggs. Yeah. And that's more just that like nothing is ever a perfectly efficient process. Some of those follicles may have an egg in them. That's just not a good egg. And it's just very fragile. And just like during the physical process of IVF, you know, when you go to suck it out of the follicle, it just doesn't come or it breaks down. And there is technically, there's usually one egg in every follicle. Okay. I didn't mean to totally overcomplicate this with follicles and eggs, but I guess I did. (laughs) Anyway, going back. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, at 
every age ovarian reserve is like a bell-shaped curve where some people are going to be on the lower side of the numbers and some people are going to be on the higher side a normal ovarian reserve so a normal number which is also it's an antral follicle count on your ultrasound a normal antral follicle count is usually between 10 and 15. and when i start to see fewer than 10 antral follicles on an ultrasound i might start calling someone diminished ovarian reserve there are also people with very high ovarian reserve, you know, more than 20 antral follicles each month on their ultrasounds. And the thing is, is this is completely different from infertility. There are lots of people running around out there with very low ovarian reserve, but because they ovulate their one egg per month and they are otherwise perfectly fertile, they get pregnant and they never know that they had low reserve. There are also lots and lots of people with high egg numbers that because of sperm count issues or tubal issues or ovulation issues or usually unexplained issues still have infertility even though they have nice high egg numbers. The two things are completely different and it's very important that your doctor not conflate these things and unnecessarily scare you about low reserve Lots of people try to just for simplicity will tell you, you have low reserve. This is like severe infertility. That's like completely not true. Is there a relationship between your AMH test and low ovarian reserve or diminished ovarian reserve? Yes. So they're all, these are all things that help us predict sort of where someone falls on the bell curve. And a low AMH typically goes along with a low antral follicle count and is an indicator of diminished ovarian reserve. And importantly, none of these indicators mean that you have severe or intractable infertility. We use these methods because we need something to help guide our treatment Mainly, we have to know whether you are going to need high or low doses of medication because we should be personalizing our treatment to each patient. And someone with low reserve needs higher doses of medication. Somebody with higher reserve, then they need lower doses of medicine because they're going to respond strongly and actually can be unsafe to give them high doses of medications. So we have to know that going into it. And also we need to manage expectations. I need to be able to say to you, you're not going to have that many eggs retrieved. That's okay. But we have to know that you might be more worried or anxious during this treatment than you might be if you had these robust high egg numbers. Well, and speaking about expectations, I mean, that's so important for patients now, especially with these Facebook groups and like online communities, which can be really helpful in a lot of ways. But when you're talking about different patients with different ages and diagnoses and protocols and physicians, like your best friend going through IVF across the country could get 25 eggs and you could get seven, but maybe that was really good for you. Right. It's such a problem. The compare and despair thing that we all do with social media, it just gets magnified during fertility treatments. And everybody's personal situation is so different that the most important thing is just optimizing your treatment to you. And you have to deal with what you have. With ovarian reserve, I tell people we work with what we have. There's not much you can do about it. We'll be right back. When you're trying to get pregnant, the sheer volume of products and supplements can be completely overwhelming. There are so many vitamins, ovulation trackers, apps, woof. So if you're looking for a place to start, check out our deals page at fruitfulfertility.org deals. We partner with the most amazing companies in the industry who all want to help get you pregnant. 
Whether it's a new meditation tailor-made for an IUI or IVF cycle, or access to fertility nutrition courses designed by experts, we've got you covered. Check out all of our partner deals at fruitfulfertility.org deals. Now back to the show. Are there any physical symptoms that come with a DOR diagnosis? Like, might someone believe they have it before they have any tests done, or is there no real way to know? That's a really good question. And there actually is a physical symptom. So if you are someone who knows what your own menstrual pattern is, and you are like, well, for all my twenties and early thirties, I was like clockwork. Every 28 days I had a period. What's going to happen with diminished reserve is your cycles are going to start to get shorter, meaning your intervals between day one to day one. So when somebody comes in and says they used to have a 28 day cycle, and now it's really an obvious 25 to 26 day cycle, it's, they're quite often going to be in the diminished ovarian reserve territory. And that's because with lower egg numbers, your body kind of like gets on this fast conveyor belt. And where what happens is the whole cycle just speeds up because there's fewer follicles to create this sort of like simmering stew of eggs waiting, the dominant follicle gets chosen more quickly and ovulates more quickly. So when your cycle is a 25 to 26 day cycle, you're actually ovulating on like cycle day 11 at this point, not cycle day 14. And that's really a good indicator of DOR. Do we know what causes DOR? Is it genetic at all? Do we know anything about that? Are we still kind of in the beginning stages of understanding this diagnosis? There are medically, there are what we call it iatrogenic. So where it's, there's a medical reason for your diminished ovarian reserve. And those are situations, particularly if somebody is a cancer survivor and has had chemotherapy. Most people who've had chemotherapy in the past will have DOR. People who've had pelvic surgeries, like removal of one ovary, or, or usually it's women who've had severe endometriosis surgeries where they've had really sticky endometriosis and they've lost um, much of one or both ovaries due to ovarian cysts, endometriomas in the ovaries, those women can wind up with severe DOR. And that's a really important thing to remember because a lot of people are getting their endometriosis surgeries with gynecologists who are not fertility experts. And it's really important to have a conversation with a fertility expert before you have an endometriosis surgery, um, because there are things that we can do to minimize the loss of normal ovary during that surgery, or to even do like an egg retrieval before you have a surgery. So before you lose ovary. Well, and that's a huge topic that we've talked about before. Like I had endometriosis and that was the cause of my infertility and my reproductive endocrinologist once she saw the cysts on my ovaries, they were on both, she recommended not getting surgery. She was like, we'll work around it and do your cycles. But that was in direct right. contrast to a lot of stuff I was reading on Facebook and in these right. groups where women were like, I'm going to get this first. Yeah, no. But my doctor was mm -hmm. like, no, because if your ovary gets messed up, then we have a lot more ground to cover. So correct. You had a wonderful, you had a very good doctor. And I agree. I try really hard not to touch endometriomas either. Yeah, she's yeah. awesome. And we have another episode about endometriosis. Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can learn that too. Do you find that DOR usually is diagnosed with another issue as well, like a tubal blockage or PCOS or just totally depends? So I only see people who have other issues. <laughs> um, it's a, not a random sampling. And there is actually excellent scientific data out there 
from women who are at the very beginning of their journey to attempt to conceive. So these are women without a diagnosis of infertility who have testing, you know, our particular ovarian reserve testing, they all have it and they all go on and try to get pregnant. There is actually not a correlation between your baseline ovarian reserve testing and your actual ability to get pregnant. So like I said at the beginning, it's really important. It's like the most important message to get through. This is a complicating factor in infertility treatment. It is not the cause of infertility. And there's lots of people out there with DOR who don't have trouble getting pregnant. And we all see it also where somebody will run a test, an AMH on you know, a young, healthy person just for information. And then that person will come in very worried about their reserve and I'll say, hey, go try to get pregnant. And they do without any trouble. And then conversely, it can become a devastating diagnosis if somebody's trying to do egg freezing, because with egg freezing, they may not have infertility at all. What they're trying to do is just preserve their options for the future. Understandably, if you're single and you don't have Mr. Right, and you are trying to do something really good and proactive for yourself and preserve eggs that are younger for your use in the future. This is all a man-made construct. We don't even know if you're going to have any trouble getting pregnant, but having low egg numbers makes that egg freezing a much more both inefficient process, meaning with a lower chance of success for the future, but also a really emotionally difficult time for these women because they come in with nothing actually wrong with them and then get diagnosed with this that's complicating their best laid plans. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is a pretty common scenario now. Like, it's great that we have more access to information about our bodies that can give us options about our reproductive care earlier, but it definitely, like, makes people think about it differently. I've had friends do some of these at-home testing kits where they find out they have really low AMH when they're 25, 26, and it's like, well, what am I going to do now? And so then you're being asked to make these decisions right. that normally you wouldn't, like maybe you would get pregnant naturally and right. you even have to worry about it. Yeah, so, exactly. so it's good to have more information for sure, but I think it also can like complicate stuff. Right. Because then you get somebody in who's, who's 25 who wants to freeze her eggs because her AMH is low. And it's this crazy situation where it's like, I don't even know how worried I should be about you. I know that your AMH your reserve can only go down with time. So, you know, if it's already low in your twenties, yeah, it seems to make sense that freezing eggs in your twenties is helpful because it's only going to go down with time and potentially make things harder when you're older. But what I have trouble with is this, the clear line that many doctors are going to draw and say, Oh my God, your numbers are so low. Do this now. And like really freak people out. I think it is a much more nuanced conversation and it is because we are knowledgeable about this, that we have to try to have that conversation that this is not a black and white thing. Can your AMH change over time? I've seen examples of people having a specific number, maybe cleaning up their diet a little bit, getting more sleep, doing some self-care stuff, and then having that number change a bit in a couple months. Is that normal? Does that happen a lot? So great question. The one thing that can definitely make AMH change is if you're on birth control pills. So if you're on birth control pills, it's always going to be lower than what your actual number is. So stopping birth control pills will usually cause a pretty significant rebound, um, positive rebound in your ovarian reserve markers. But to get into the more subtle things, I think the question there is, so what? So let's say 
one month your AMH is 1.0 and the next month it's 1.4. Who cares? Like, does that really change what we're doing? Does it really and change what we're doing? No. Okay. And so the thing is, first of all, it is a, a notoriously finicky test. It's not a perfect test. The laboratories that test AMH are, these numbers are kind of all over the board. And sometimes it's like a random number generator, honestly. We all have experiences where someone's ovaries behave in a way that their AMH would not have suggested, usually for the good. Usually somebody has a low AMH. And then when we do treatment, we wind up having far better egg numbers than we would have predicted. So on average, I think people wind up having better numbers than you initially predict. And that's just because it's a bad test. But also to get back to my question of who cares, if you are experiencing infertility and you need treatment, then you need treatment because of your primary diagnosis of infertility. DOR is not a diagnosis in itself. And all the DOR diagnosis does is help guide our treatment options. And I, as a trained physician, have an eye to decide what kind of medication protocol I'm gonna use for somebody based on like my gestalt sense of their egg number. And so if she's on the low side, doesn't really matter what the actual numbers are. I'm going to go for high dose medication protocols to get you the best outcome for yourself. Shifting a little bit from egg quantity to egg quality, is there a way to measure that? And can your egg quality ever change? It's a great question. And unfortunately, so this is a totally different question. Um, and so egg quality is, um, there's sort of two different things. One is I don't like to use the term egg quality because I think it implies a global problem. So I don't like to say women's egg quality declines between 35 and 40. That's a statement you'll never hear me say. What I say is the proportion of normal eggs that a woman has declines between 35 and 40. An egg is either good or it's bad, or it's genetically normal or it's not genetically normal. It is all or nothing. It's not about a global decline in quality. If you're 38 and we get lucky and we have a good egg and we have a good embryo and we have a baby, that baby is not a lower quality baby than it would have been at 28. It was a good egg. So the overwhelming majority of people, that's the thing. It's not a global egg quality decline. It's a decline in the proportion of normal eggs. Very, very rarely we do have people whose primary fertility issue is low egg quality. And that is very, very difficult to deal with because you're never gonna really be able to figure out exactly why someone's egg quality is low. And for these women, they sort of divide into two groups when you do treatment for them, if they're really struggling to get pregnant and you wind up doing treatment for them. Some women with lower egg quality when you do their treatment, the embryos just don't look as good as you would have expected. It's kind of underwhelming and you get fewer embryos than you would have expected from their, again, from their ovarian reserve. We're using ovarian reserve as sort of our pre-cycle predictive numbers. So, you know, you get fewer good eggs, fewer good embryos, whatever, but those people will still get pregnant. And so, and then it's like, great, my treatment really did something. We found with our treatment, the good egg to make this person a baby, even though in general, her eggs just didn't really do as great as I would have expected. And that's great. There are also situations typically in younger women in like their twenties 
who have never gotten pregnant in years and years of trying and then go through lots of IUIs and then finally get to IVF and their eggs or embryos just kind of like fizzle out in the dish. And it's like, whoa, your IVF that was meant to make you a baby just turned into a very expensive diagnostic procedure where I've just diagnosed why we've never been able to have a successful pregnancy. And it's devastating. It's very, very rare. But when it happens, that's when you need a really good relationship with your doctor for somebody to look you in the eye and give you an honest discussion about this. Are there any specific vitamins or supplements that you recommend women with DOR explore or that you think might help? Yeah, I wish there were magic pills. I'm not. I mean, <laughs> that is what I'm actually asking. I'm like, what magical pill will reverse? Yeah, I wish. You have a time machine. Yeah. I know. I really wish, but there's some, some scientific data out there for CoQ10, DHEA. It's all the stuff that you've heard over and over again, acupuncture, Chinese herbs. These things can have some small influence, but nothing magical. Sometimes I think just the act of doing those kinds of things is more of like what's really changing and and the effort that you go through and the mindfulness and like all of that stuff sometimes I think is like what can also really make a difference. Like I did acupuncture. Do I know if my acupuncture worked? I don't know, but I do know I felt calm. And I do know that like, as someone who has a pretty strong fight or flight feeling at all times, like that was helpful to me. So is that why a cycle worked? I don't know. I just know like, okay, that's not hurting me. No, absolutely. And it's really, really important that we look at the whole picture and keep our patients as happy and normal and functional during this as possible. And it sounds like that was a really important part of this for you. Yeah. And I think that for so many people going through this, it's like the mind-body connection and having an understanding that we are all interconnected, like all the different parts of us our blood pressure, the way that we're thinking, the way that we're anxious, what we're nervously pacing about, like that all, it all is so interconnected. Exactly. Do you have any tips or advice for people or couples at the beginning of their fertility journey? Things that you wish your early patients would know? Yeah, I think everybody should just know that this is a marathon and not a sprint and that there should be a steady progression. Um, You should be always advancing towards your goal and that your treatment is going to evolve. It's going to constantly change as your body declares itself for its own differences. And as your doctor learns of those things and to just trust in the process that this is actually really incredible medicine. Uh, We really can help most people. And it's all about just trusting the process, but also making sure that you have the right, surround yourself with the right people, that your medical team is the right medical team and your support network is the right support network for you. And don't be afraid if you don't love your doctor or you don't feel comfortable or you feel like you're being pressured towards a certain treatment pathway, like make sure you're getting other opinions. Like don't just quietly go along with the train if you're like not understanding or you don't agree. I mean, I think we talk a lot about patient advocacy and how like it's your responsibility as the patient to say like, whoa, whoa, I have questions. I'm not comfortable. What's going on? And if you feel like you're not being listened to, you know, talk to other doctors. And I I experience that all the time. I have 
so many grateful patients who come to me after a bad experience somewhere else. And they're just so, they feel like they like escaped something. You know, if, if they get to me early enough, um, they just are so relieved that they figured it out. I fielded so many phone calls from people who have already paid for treatment somewhere and are trying to switch to me. And then they can't because they can't get their money back. And they all say, I wish I had known. I wish I had done my research. I wish it like, I don't understand why this is the way it is, but that people really get sucked in by some of these big practices that aren't really extending the kind of personal touch that you need. And by the time they realize that they're not happy, they're just too far along to be able to switch. Well, and I think too often patients are like, oh, I trust them. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. And then all of a sudden it gets to a breaking point where they're like, oh my God, what is happening? Yeah. As opposed to like over time getting comfortable and building that relationship. I think sometimes what happens at these larger practices also is like you see your doctor one or two times. You're yeah. mostly talking to a nurse. You're mostly talking through an online portal. You're getting your blood drawn. Like you don't really see your RE that much. And so if you have questions, like it's your responsibility to make sure those questions get answered, even if it's not like oh, well, that, like for this, we do this or for that, we do that. It's like, no, you need to insist that you get those questions answered before you write that check. Yeah, it's really hard. I can't even believe that we have to have this conversation because I can't even imagine how hard that must be for somebody in that situation. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's putting a lot of responsibility on someone who's already yes. feeling really vulnerable right. and who is not in a position of power in that relationship. You're not the expert. It might be your body. You're the expert on your body. But if you have to raise your hand or speak to someone, especially someone who might be condescending or busy or right. not necessarily create an environment that's very trusting and open, like it's kind of hard to do that. So my question for you, Dr. Goldstein, is how can fertility clinics get better at emotion supporting their patients, you know, as they're going through testing and treatment? You know, it's interesting. I think that empathy and, and communication skills are innate to an individual. And, and I think that the landscape is going to change as the older people retire and the younger doctors who really understand the patient experience fill out the positions. And I do think it's going to change over time. But, you know, certainly many offices have, you know, therapists and counselors like in their office or, you know, a yoga class or something. But it all sort of gets back to what we were talking about with how tough it can be to deal with other women going through infertility. Like, do you really want to go sit in a yoga class with, you know, Mrs. Jones who had 20 eggs when you only had 10? <laughs> like yeah. Really or who's like thing. all of her, pro, like yeah. all of her treatments are all covered for by insurance or right. somebody right. else who had got nine genetically normal embryos and you're like on your yeah. third round trying to get one. I mean, it's just, it's a lot to deal with emotionally. Yeah. So that's why I think it's got to be the personal connection that you have with just the people. It's all about just picking the right people. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein, so much for being a guest today. If you want to learn more about Dr. Goldstein's practice, she's in LA. Her website is bhfertility.com, as in Beverly Hills, uh, bhfertility.com. You can find her on Instagram at Goldstein. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. And if any listeners want to send me messages on Instagram or call, my phone number is on my website. I'm happy to field those questions. Thank you so much. So generous of you. We appreciate it.
Been There Injected That is produced by Fruitful Fertility and hosted by myself, Elise Ash. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe to get updates, and visit our website at fruitfulfertility.org. Thanks for listening.